Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus which means salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child that will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Will you pray with me? Lord God, as we come now to worship you, come now to hear your word, Lord, I pray that you would be with your word as it goes forth. May the words that I say over the next half hour or so not be my words. God, you spoke to Balaam through a donkey. So I am reminded that I am nothing special, Lord. These are your words that I am proclaiming. As your words go forth, Lord, I pray that they would accomplish the thing for which you have sent them out. Lord, may they increase the faith in the hearts of those who hear these words. May they draw people closer to you. Lord, may they in some small way bring about your kingdom here on this earth. Use them for your honor and for your glory, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in the middle of a a sermon series through Advent called Songs of Hope. It's called Songs of Hope because in the first two chapters of the book of Luke, there are a number of songs that are sung. Some are famous. For example, next week we're going to go through the Magnificat, Mary's famous song, right, in response to the news that Gabriel has brought her. Today, our song, we, you know, it might not necessarily be bracketed as a song in your Bible, but Gabriel, in his prophecy about Jesus, it's a poem. It's set aside in, in you know, classic form of Hebrew poetry and in lines of parallelism. It's a song, We don't know what it would have sounded like, trying to imagine an angel singing to Mary, and it's just kind of overwhelming to me a little bit, but it's a song nonetheless. 
These are songs that are not just songs, but they are songs of hope. Songs that look forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Songs that look back at the people of God and their hope for a coming Messiah. Songs that still look forward to our coming hope today. Our passage this morning is one of these songs of hope. If you've ever, if you've ever driven on a, on a highway, which I'm assuming that all of you have, maybe not, I never assume anything they say, but I think that one's probably pretty safe. If you've ever driven on, driven on a highway, you have seen a road sign, a sign marking out kind of where you are, where you're going. I drive on a highway. Every, every day I come here in order to get home. And there are different kinds of signs there. There are, there are mile markers, right, that, you know, you can tell where you are on the highway in case something goes wrong in your car and you've got to call 911. You can say, hey, you know, I'm at mile marker you know, 85 or whatever it is. And that mile marker will tell you how far you are away from the end of the highway or maybe the state border or whatever it is. They, you know, they're good to know your location. There are other kinds of signs that say, hey, you know, if you want to go to this town, you've got to take this highway. If you want to go to this other town, you've got to take this other highway. You know, if you're heading south on I-75, you know, a few miles south of here, you have an option. Do you want to go to Ann Arbor or do you want to go to Detroit? You know, previously, you know, on the highway, if you were going to Ann Arbor and Detroit, it's the same highway. But, you know, at some point, you've got to come to a place where you go off. And the sign tells you which way to go. Sometimes you'll see signs on the side of the road that say, this city this many miles away, this city this many miles away. And so you know that, you know, you have, you have time before you get there. Maybe you need to plan a bathroom break before you get there. They help you know where you are. Signs meant to help get you to your destination, meant to point you that way. We would be foolish, and I've, you know, I've picked this illustration because it sounds foolish. We would be foolish to confuse the sign with the destination itself. For example, I've never, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but for example, let's say I was going to go. You know, big family trip, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon, we're going to see this site, you know, it's going to be this big, you know, adventure, we're going to take pictures and remember it for the rest of our lives and tell people, oh, it's a really big hole in the ground. I've, I've never been there, it's probably cool. Um, but what, you know, if we were going to go, and I, I don't know what the signs are like around there, but I'm imagining there's a sign that says, Grand Canyon exit here. How foolish would it be? How dumb would it be if we pulled off to the side of the road, got out, you know, whole family picture, signed by the Grand Canyon, hey, Grand Canyon exit here, and then we say, guess that was it, we're going to go home. It's dumb, right? It's supposed to be dumb. It's an illustration. No, that's not the point. We want to go see the, the thing itself. We don't want to be merely satisfied with the signs. We want to use the signs to point us to the thing that is the big deal. In the story of Scripture, we are often tempted to make big deals out of the signs instead of the big deal itself. The big deal in the Bible is Jesus. He is at the center of the entire thing. The sermon title this morning is pulled from, from, you know, from, Gabriel's, from Gabriel's song. He will be great. Jesus is the great one. 
And it can be our temptation, you know, especially as we, you know, go through the Old Testament and see those stories, to, to look at the characters in the Old Testament and see them as, as moral examples, see them as people that we should look up to, maybe negative moral examples, people whose behavior we should avoid. And there's a place for that. But ultimately, every character in the Bible who is not Jesus is a sign that points to Jesus. We have three of these characters this morning. The first of them is John the Baptist. Last week, if you were, if you were with us, we looked at, and we're kind of going sequentially through Luke 1 and 2, so we looked at the, the story right before this one. And it's a similar story. It's an annunciation of the birth of a baby. But last week, we looked at the annunciation of, of John the Baptist. And if all we looked at was that story, we might be confused into thinking that John the Baptist is is the guy that we're looking for. And it's true that John the Baptist is great. You know, there's, there's expectation in the Old Testament of this coming prophet, the one who would herald the day of the Lord, who would tell people that this day is coming, who would preach repentance and force people to choose. Do they want to stay in their sinful ways, or do they want to come and repent and be part of the people of God that stands on that final day? John the Baptist is that coming prophet. But he is not the big deal. There are some similarities between the announcements of of John's birth and Jesus' birth, Right? Both involve the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel does not show up a lot in the Bible. He shows up like in the book of Daniel and then in the birth narratives, and that's, that's really about it. But both are announced by, by Gabriel. The recipients of both announcements are, are they react in fear. Right? Zechariah, in, in the holy place, as he's giving the offerings, the angel shows up and he reacts in fear. He's terrified. The angel shows up to marry a 13-year-old girl, probably. That's the age when, you know, young women, young girls, really, that's the age when they got betrothed. So an angel shows up to to a young girl. She reacts in fear. Both births are miraculous, right? John the Baptist was born to parents... John the Baptist was born to parents who were, they were old, they were, they were sterile, they were barren, they couldn't have kids, even if they were younger. But God enabled that union to be able to have a son. Mary was a virgin. And we, but we see in, even though there are similarities between these two birth announcements, there are differences. Zechariah was an old man. He was a priest. You would expect him to react in faith and perhaps the young girl to doubt, but that's not what happens. The old priest, the one who who should be an example of moral righteousness, he was the one who doubts. He says, is there a sign that I can get that this thing is really true? But the young girl reacts in faith. She has some questions about how it's going to work. But she she responds in faith. She trusts the angel's announcement. And both births were miraculous, yes, but but John the Baptist's birth was an entirely human birth, a miraculous human birth, but a human birth nonetheless, with a mother and a father. Mary's was a divine birth. She had never known a man. She was a virgin. God himself had to come on her. 
because the child that would be born would be different. John the Baptist was a great prophet, but he was still entirely human. Jesus, the child whom Mary would bear, was fully human and fully God, miraculously conceived by the virgin birth. So John the Baptist as a character has some similarities to Jesus, but once you look deeper, John the Baptist is a signpost that points to the one who is greater than he is. The angel says that John the Baptist is going to be great, but he will only be great before the Lord. He's going to go before God as a prophet, heralding that God is coming. And we mentioned this last week, but as we look through the Gospels, as we look through the story of Luke, the story of Matthew, the story of John, we see John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, in the book of John, says, He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not really about John the Baptist at all. John the Baptist fades off the scene. He is the signpost that points to the one who is great. John the Baptist is not the culmination of redemptive history. That's Jesus. John the Baptist is not the one whose name means salvation. That's Jesus. John the Baptist is not the one who would redeem his people. That's Jesus. The next signpost we come to is the person of Mary. Now, I understand that, you know, when we bring up Mary when we're preaching, it's, it's kind of awkward because, you know, in Christianity, there are, there are two big streams of thought, right? You have Catholic theology, you have Protestant theology, and we as Presbyterians are pretty squarely in the Protestant theology category. But I understand that, you know, there's, there's some Catholic background here, and I'm, I'm not trying to step on toes intentionally, but I think, it's, I think it's worth bringing this up. I think this is worth preaching on. Mary is a blessed woman. She is blessed in a way that I am not, that you are not. An angel appears to her when she is 13 years old. Can you imagine that? An angel appears to her, and she responds with great faith. She is a 13-year-old girl who trusts God. She alone gets to call herself the mother of God. She held the creator of the universe in her arms. She is incredibly blessed. But Mary, just like every single one of us, is born a sinner, and is born in need of God's grace. When the angel greets Mary here, he says, Greetings, Mary, you who have received favor from God. Mary received God's grace because the only way for any of us to get to the throne of God, Mary included, is to receive the grace of God. Mary was not born without original sin. Mary does not remain a virgin through her entire life. She was a normal woman with a normal family, a sinner who needed the grace of God and received it in abundant measure. Just as John the Baptist is a signpost that's supposed to point us to Jesus, we're supposed to hear his message and supposed to be reminded of the greatness of Jesus, so we're supposed to look at Mary and see that her son is the great one. 
So we can pray to Jesus because he is great. He is the one who brings us favor and blessing and salvation. Our third signpost this morning is that of King David and King Solomon, and really all of the Old Testament kingship rolled into one. We're going to count that as one, as one signpost this morning. The angel says this in verse 32, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, it's worth, it's worth stepping back for a minute and, and remembering sort of the geopolitical reality of, of what's going on here. I say geopolitics and some people's eyes glaze over. Mine just kind of get bright because I really enjoy that sort of thing. There was no throne of David in this day. King David reigned a thousand years before Jesus was born. And King David and King Solomon, Solomon was David's son, they, that was really the high point of Israel's reign as a nation. Over, over the centuries, the, the throne began to fade and fade. Israel went from being sort of a regional power to being sort of a regional kicking boy to having puppet rulers to having no rulers at all. And the book of Luke here tells us that that Joseph and Mary were, they were descended from David. They were of royal lineage. But there was no royal court or no royal family for them to be a part of. They were just peasants who lived in Nazareth with memories, with stories of a great past behind them and hopes of an expectant future. But the angel comes and says, he's going to reign on the throne of his father, David. There's no throne. Israel is under the thumb, under the oppression of a foreign nation. There's no throne for him to sit on. But he is going to be the one who fulfills the hopes of the, of the prophets that the kingdom would be restored. If we can go back to the character of David back in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as David is really establishing his reign, God gives a promise to David that we never really see fulfilled. God promises David the following. From, this is a prophet speaking to David directly about his son, but ultimately about Jesus. This is 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and Solomon did. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The vision here. The vision that the King David has, that the prophet has, is of a kingdom that goes for eternity. You know, King Solomon would be the king who builds the house of God, who establishes the worship of God in this place. And the vision here is that the nation of Israel would grow and grow and grow and point people to God. 
And we see a little glimpse of that in the reign of Solomon, right? When the queen of Sheba, she hears of the great wisdom of Solomon, hears what's going on. She says, I got to go check this out for myself. And she comes from a far country and comes and worships God. And when you're reading that, you're kind of supposed to say, oh, this is, it's happening. All of the people are going to come in. They're going to worship the one true God. And we're finally going to have the promise fulfilled that God made to Abraham that the entire world's going to be blessed. Finally, all of the sin that Adam and Eve brought on the world are going to be undone through this. But that's not what happens. Solomon falls into sin. Solomon falls into wicked sin. And of all the kings after him, they never quite get back to the glory that they had under Solomon and under David. The kingdom began to wane. Other nations began to have more and more influence over the nation of Israel. And this, this promise that the, na- or that the throne would be established forever, the prophets begin to look forward to a day when a Messiah will come and finally establish the throne forever. This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. This this verse will be familiar to you. It's a common Christmas text. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We have the stories of King David and King Solomon and all of these other kings in the Old Testament, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the one king who would come. Jesus is the great one. Just as John the Baptist points to Jesus, just as Mary points to Jesus, all of the kings of the Old Testament point to this one king who would establish the throne of God for eternity. And Jesus did indeed. He was crowned king on the cross. When he died, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. They nailed a sign above his head that said, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, meant to mock him, but proclaiming truth. He was lifted up above his people. He was crowned in his death. And in his resurrection from the dead, he ascended to heaven where he rules now on the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And one day he will come back in full to finally establish his rule and his reign on this earth forever. He is the sign, or he is the destination that the sign of the kings of the Old Testament look forward to. This is the one. It's tempting for us in this Christmas season to make the story of the baby in the manger just to feel good, you know, oh, isn't it sweet that this couple came and, you know, there wasn't room in the inn, but, you know, they they found, you know, a manger and they they laid the baby in a manger and shepherds came and sang, isn't isn't that nice? And don't, don't get me wrong, it is nice. It makes a great story to read, you know, as kids are opening presents and the fire's going and you're drinking coffee. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. But it's not just that. This is the story of a king who is coming to save his people 
of a Savior. Remember, Jesus' name means salvation, of a Savior who is coming to save the entire world from the sin that Adam and Eve brought on this world, the sin that we, in our sin, continue to impose on the world. We need to be saved, and Jesus the King is the one who saves us. So we as a people are caught between remembrance and hope. Remembering the first coming of our Lord, remembering his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and looking forward to the day when he comes to establish his throne in full. It's worth reminding ourselves before we leave that no other king can bring us salvation. We often look to the kings of money, sex, power, influence, pleasure. These things we often look to to bring us salvation. There's something wrong in our lives. There's a hole that we want to fill, and we say, if I could just have enough pleasure, then that'll be it. If I can just have enough money, then I'll be secure. If I can just have enough power and influence over other people, then I'll be set. But those are false kings that cannot bring salvation. Only Jesus can. We sometimes look to human rulers, politicians, Republicans, Democrats, we say, if only Donald Trump will be able to, you know, stay in office for four more years, then our country will be fixed. If only we can elect this kind of person or this kind of person, if only we can pass this law or that law, then we're going to be able to fix our country. The gospel tells us that only King Jesus can bring us salvation. So as we wait... As we look forward to the day when he establishes his kingdom, we wait in hope, knowing, trusting, praying that only he can save us. And we long for the day when he comes to establish his throne in full. Because he will be great. He is the one who brings salvation. Let us not be confused by other things that try to steal our attention, signposts, other kings, because Jesus Christ is the king who this story is all about. Will you pray with me?